And now, Father, I pray what we have just sung, come, thou almighty King, come, give thy word success, come and your people bless, O Spirit of holiness, on us descend. Fill us with your Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help us, not just now, but during the week, to be faithful to saturate our minds and our hearts with your word, so that your spirit can move freely and willfully have sway over our lives. The spirit and the word, O oh Lord, the spirit and the word, may they rule us and may we be willingly led wherever you go. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. I pray that you would use it now to speak to your people to change our hearts, to cause us to love Christ more, and that perhaps some, someone hearing my voice would be born again. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 12, once again. John chapter 12, as you know, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the crowds were absolutely electrified with excitement by the belief that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And this resulted in an event that tr Christian tradition refers to as Palm Sunday. It was, in fact, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we looked at that last week. And we observed last time that this was the absolute high point of Jesus' public ministry. We still have a long way to go in, in the Gospel of John, but this is kind of the end of his public ministry. And yet throngs of people met him on the road that day, waving palm branches, singing and shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, blessed is the king of Israel, save us, deliver us, Hosanna. And the choir was singing and the people were waving palm branches and and we, we learned from the other gospels that people were actually taking off their coats and laying them in the road on the ground in front of the donkey as if to make a makeshift red carpet to welcome their king into the holy city. This was a fantastic event, a glorious and fantastic a massive spontaneous reception for the one that the people had come to believe was their Messiah, their king. In fact, you remember... Um, last week that I said that I think the most important part of all of this was the reality that although Jesus in the past, every time they tried to make him king, and one time even were going to do it by force, he, he essentially told them, no, we're not doing that. That's not why I have come. And yet here, when they're calling him king, and they're singing, and they're praising, and they're they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, deliver us. He willingly accepted it. In fact, he arranged for the donkey to be brought. Two donkeys, actually. Remember, he sat on the smaller one, the baby donkey, and rode it in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that your king would come to you riding on the colt of a donkey, a baby donkey, on which no one had ever ridden. And... Um, the significant thing was that he accepted. 
He accepted their praise. As it, it, it was as if he was accepting their call for him to be their king. Rule us, lead us, deliver us. You are the Messiah. You are Christ. And, um, and just in case there was any um, doubt about that, we have to remember that the Pharisees, in the middle of all this, were incensed. And they ran down to Jesus, who I imagine kind of coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and maybe before he gets heading it up, you know, you got a crowd behind him and a crowd in front of him, and they, they come together, and the, and the Pharisees come running down to him in the midst of all of this shouting and singing and palm branches and the red carpet and, and everything, and they come to him and, and they say, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And you remember his response. I tell you, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. Let there be no mistake, this was an acceptance of his kingship. They accepted it, and more importantly, he was accepting it. Because that's who he was. He was their king. And you just have to know at this point, the disciples are looking at all this, and all along they kept asking him, is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Even after the resurrection, (laughs) they still are saying, okay, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? They really thought that... Uh, because the Old Testament scriptures are ambiguous in terms of how this all was going to play out. And so they're wondering, is it now? I mean, what a perfect time. The people are ready. Here you are at the temple. It's, it's perfect. And they had to be thinking, surely he would set up his kingdom now, in this place, right now, before our very eyes. This was the moment they had all been hoping for. This was the moment that Israel had prayed for, for centuries. But alas, It was not to be. When this spontaneous reception of Israel's king had subsided, instead of speaking to his disciples about setting up the ruling administration with his disciples as heads of government and heads of state, Jesus began talking about sacrifice. Sacrifice. Not kingdom, but sacrifice. Let's read our passage together for this morning. Would you stand with me again? If you're visiting with us, we just believe the most important part of our worship service is when we read the Word of God. Let's just let God speak. Verse 20. This is John, Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among them who were going up to worship at the feast. These men then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, the earth, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, My Father will honor him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. So he's talking about sacrifice. And so that's kind of the structure that I've 
the framework that I've built this message on. So if you're keeping notes, number one, the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of glory. The sacrifice that reaps a harvest of glory. The key to interpreting this passage, I think, is found in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the centerpiece. Imagine after you go home today, you're going to have maybe family dinner, and in the middle there would be a beautiful centerpiece, maybe. Imagine this text like that, this wonderful meal, and the centerpiece of it is this beautiful and perplexing and wonderful statement. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is one of the laws of the harvest. Before there can be harvest, there must be sacrifice. And Jesus' mission on earth was to bring many sons to glory. And not only from the Jews, for he also said, you remember back in chapter 10, you can flip one or two pages to the left and see it for yourself, verse 16 He says, I have other sheep who are not from this fold, and I must bring them also. This is what Jesus came to do. And it is exactly what we find happening here in this passage. Jesus came to bear much fruit. And how would he do that? Well, we'll see that in the next couple of verses. But here, let's just focus on the multiplying principle. You harvest in multiples of whatever you plant. And so we read in verses 20 through 22, starting with verse 20, let's look at it again. Now there were some Greeks among them who were going up to worship at the feast, and these men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've read this passage before, I look at that and go, what? How did that get in there? And what does that mean? I mean, what does it have to do with everything else that just happened? I mean, here we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and then the conspiracy to kill Jesus. Okay, that makes sense. They're mad at him for embarrassing them. The Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection, and now there's Lazarus. He's a living demonstration that their doctrine is wrong. And, and then in chapter 12, Mary comes and anoints his feet, and Jesus says, let her alone, let her do that, it's for my burial. And then Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and we have this spontaneous celebration that comes, and you think, okay, I get that, I get that. And then, the, and then suddenly, there's something about these Greeks who arrive, and they want to see Jesus. And I've always wondered, I mean, What in the world does that have to do with the price of tea in China or anything else in this passage? And I would say to you now that I've studied this out this past week, it's a wonderful and appropriate addition that for whatever reason Matthew, Mark, and Luke chose to leave out and John is including. Clearly this 
passage is a continuation from the previous one because John mentions the people who were going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and that's exactly what the previous passages are about. The time frame is the same. The flow of the story is the same. The Greeks coming happened in the middle of all of that. These men and and women and families, these Jewish people, were coming to the Passover. And they came from all over the known world to worship the Lord in obedience to the law because there were three feasts that every male in Israel had to come to. And Passover was the supreme feast among them. But as they came, and they came in droves, they came in thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Nearly a million people would have been in Jerusalem at this time, if, I mean, if, if we're at a point where they're all there, nearly a million people. And yet here we find that among them were not just Jews, but some, maybe um, certainly a minority, were Gentiles. They were Greeks. And they're among this throng that is coming to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is interesting because we don't normally think of non-Jews coming to Jerusalem to worship. But the reality is, beloved, we have to remember our Old Testament. God made provision for the Gentiles. All the way back when he gave instructions for the temple. And you remember this because a long time ago when we were talking about Jesus cleansing the temple the first time, you know, I spent nearly a whole sermon explaining what the temple was like. And, and I mean, it was a sprawling complex. It covered acres And it had different courts in it. And in the center was the temple proper. It was a small building, kind of tall, had three levels to it. And inside was the holy place. And then the holy of holies where at one time God himself, his presence, settled down. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be. And then just outside of that was the court of priests, the court of men. And then beyond that was the court of women where people would come. That's where they they had the, the receptacles to receive the offerings. So anybody could be there, men and women. And then outside of that, and most of the acreage of the, of the internal area of the temple, most of it was this gigantic courtyard. And it was known as, as the court of what? The Gentiles. Now, why in the world? Why in the world? It's because God had always planned that Israel would be a light to what? the nations. And Jesus said, remember when he cleared the temple, he said, is not my father's house a house of prayer for who? The nations. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But here, the point is God made provision. It wasn't I mean, it's unusual in our thinking because we don't see it very much in Scripture, but it wasn't unusual. They were welcome to come. They were welcome to come and worship. They had to do it the right way. They, had to, they couldn't make it up as they went along. They had to come and do it the right way, but they were welcome to come and to worship. They were welcome to come. God made provision for them to come to the temple to experience the blessing of his presence with his people. And in this case, it was a, a group of Greeks and this isn't the first time we've seen them. I mean, in the Gospels, we have examples like the Roman, uh, the Roman Cornelius. You remember him? In Acts chapter 10, uh, that's, uh, Cornelius was the man that Peter went to to bring the gospel to his household. And when he did, 
the Holy Spirit showed up and they were all saved and baptized them and their children. And, uh, and then you remember the centurion who had apparently built a synagogue for the Jews and they loved him for that. And an angel came and said, you know, we've, uh, the Lord has heard your prayers. Or maybe that was Cornelius. Anyway, Luke 7, 2 through 5. In any case, such God-fearing Gentiles were attracted to the Jewish way of life without formally converting to Judaism And yet God had put it on their heart to love him. And they were admitted to the court of the Gentiles, but forbidden entrance into any of the other other courts except by pain of death. (laughs) They actually have found, archaeology has actually found, a, um, a stone that has that carved into it. No Gentiles permitted beyond this point upon penalty of death. In fact, Dallas Theological Seminary in their little museum has a copy of that stone and it was serious business. Um, So here are these Greeks and it's likely they'd come from a group of cities up north to the east side of the Sea of Galilee in what was known as the Decapolis which was largely inhabited by Greeks. Jesus had ministered there In any case, these men knew it was time for Passover, and they had come with the Jews to worship. And when they arrived, they apparently found the Jewish crowds ringing with talk about Jesus. They may have even witnessed the triumphal entry. And that may have been the very thing that kind of transitioned them out of being passive observers to being active seekers of Jesus, wanting an audience with him. They had no doubt heard about his teaching and his healing. They may have even seen it himself, performing miracles for the past three years. And some of his ministry took place right in the regions where a large concentration of Gentiles, probably Greeks, were. And they had no doubt heard about this great sign that Jesus had performed. Most recently, I mean, within a matter of days, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And the astounding thing was that he wasn't only mostly dead, he'd been dead for four days. He'd been dead for four days. And perhaps they had questions about his teaching. Perhaps like Nicodemus, they wanted to learn more about his offer of eternal life. We don't know. But they wanted an audience with Jesus. Leon Morris elaborates The general tone of this gospel leaves us with no doubt as to the point of the inquiry. Jesus was the Savior of the world. And this group of Gentiles symbolically represents the world seeking its salvation in Jesus. That's what this is about. That's why John mentions the Greeks. The Pharisees were right. The whole world is coming after him. And so maybe they were going to ask these questions, but frankly, we'll never know. We'll never know for sure. The fact is, we aren't told anything about what these Greeks wanted to say to Jesus. We have no record of Jesus actually speaking with them because as soon as Philip and Andrew tell Jesus that a group of Gentiles wants to meet with him, Jesus says something that sounds completely disconnected with the whole flow of the story. I mean, even if, even if we get this uh, part of the story reconnected, as I think we have in our minds now, right? 
What happens next kind of disconnects us again because in the midst of all of this talk about why the Gentiles are there, they come, Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. There's these Greeks. They want to talk with you. They want an audience from you. And we get this unexpected response. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let that sink in for a moment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The request from the Greeks for this interview apparently stirs within the heart of Jesus something in his core, something at the core of his being. Their arrival seems to have been the signal from heaven that Jesus had been waiting for. It told him that his passion was about to begin. It told him that his mission was almost complete. It told him that after many years of living as a son of a poor carpenter and then the son of a single mother and three years of exhausting itinerant ministry, his mission was almost over. In less than a week, he would be glorified. Andreas Kostenberger explains, Jesus' assertion, assertion that his hour has come is startling because up to this point, all references to Jesus' hour in John were always future. Not anymore. You remember Jesus speaking about his hour and John telling us about his hour, this time or period of time or moment in time or week of time, whatever it is. John 2, verse 4, you remember Jesus was about to turn the water into wine. He was minding his own business. The wedding party ran out of wine. And so Mary, his mother, comes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And, and Jesus says something curious. He says, woman, what do I have to do with this? My hour has not yet come. And Mary's great. She just looks at the servants and says, whatever, just do what he says. <laughs> it's in the Greek, I think. John 7, verse 30. The Jews were seeking to kill him. They, by chapter 7, they're really hacked at him. They're seeking to seize him. And yet John says, no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's something to this hour. John 8, verse 20, after telling the Pharisees that they didn't even know God, and they were really furious, but, John says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is the mystery of God's sovereign providence over the life of Jesus Everything from beginning to end was happening at just the right 
time. Everything had its place. Nothing was going to interfere with God's plan from the birth of Jesus to the death, to the resurrection, to the ascension of Jesus Christ. It would go moment by moment, hour by hour. You remember even the Apostle Paul points back to it in uh, Galatians chapter 5 when he says, at just the right time, The Son of God was born of a woman, born under the law. When? At just the right time. And when would he die? On his hour. And not before. And not after. It would happen the moment, the very hours, within the hours that the lambs were being sacrificed, he would be sacrificed for the world. Here in chapter 12, all of this future-oriented hour talk has changed. Now, Jesus' hour has come. His passion is about to begin. We may have expected Jesus to say something else, something like, the hour has come when the Son of Man will be crucified. That's not what he said. Rather, The hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. Glorified. This is how Jesus thought of his death. It wasn't subjection. Yes, it was horrible. And he despised the cross, the author of Hebrews tells us. It was a crushing of his life, which the Father inflicted upon him, Isaiah 53 says. But he saw it as his glory. And it would change the world. He would die for the world very soon. Very soon he would be raised from the dead, leaving an empty tomb attended by angels. Soon he would appear alive and well before hundreds of awe-stricken disciples and worshipers. Soon all authority would be given to him in heaven and on earth. And within a matter of weeks, he would ascend before their very eyes back into heaven from which he came to be seated at the right hand of God. It won't be long before the Son of God is glorified. This is the sacrifice of Jesus that will reap a harvest of glory. Secondly, we see the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of salvation. A harvest of salvation. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth. That phrase, um, maybe in the King James, verily, verily. Is that what it says? In the Greek, it's amen, amen. In the NAS, it is truly, truly. In all of this, Jesus is saying, wake up, pay attention. Just as many of you did when I did that. (laughs) Pay attention to this. This is really, really, really important. Except he was much more eloquent than that. Here's what he says, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. This is part of his glory. 
that his dying, his literal dying, would have the effect of bringing many sons to glory. Now, John doesn't tell us a lot of details about what happens after Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, after that spontaneous reception. But you know what? Mark does. And John, again, John assumes that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He repeatedly gives hints to that. And so he doesn't feel the need to add all the details. But in Mark chapter 11, we find out that once Jesus went into the temple and into the courtyard, he found once again that the courtyard had been transformed into a marketplace known in that day as the Bazaar of Annas, and they were selling all kinds of things. Because Annas figured out if he could turn the temple into a, a, into a marketplace, he could become rich, him and his fellow cronies. And obviously, uh, Jesus didn't like that. In fact, this is the second occasion where we find Jesus is furious. And Mark tells us he began driving out those who were buying and selling and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he wouldn't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. You've got to understand, once again, the temple is this massive place. It's acres and acres and acres of stone and pavement and And it was so big that when the road kind of came to the temple and then it picked up again on the other side of the temple and it was a whole lot easier because the place was so big. It was just a whole lot easier to walk through the temple with your merchandise and go out the other side and pick up the road on the other side and continue your journey. And the the, the street kind of went right through the middle of it and that's not how it was designed to be. And after Jesus kicked everybody else out, he made sure nobody was walking through the temple with their merchandise. You keep that out. It's not what my father's house is for. It's not a marketplace. It's not a sidewalk. It's not for you to come and take a shortcut through the temple. What is that? It shows where your heart is. Shows where your heart is. You think that the place of prayer that God has established for the nations, that place of worship is nothing but a shortcut to get you to where you want to go. And Jesus was really, he was throwing out their stuff, yes, but he was addressing the issue of their heart. Obviously, obviously at this point, this did nothing to ease the tension between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. They were not going to love him for this. And so they redoubled their efforts to destroy him. And on the way out of the temple, Mark tells us, he comes out of the temple, back down the road, he's hungry, and he sees a tree, a fig tree. And he thinks, oh, lunch, at least a snack. And he goes to the tree. No figs. The only time Jesus ever uses his power to do harm is when he cursed that fig tree. You will never bear fruit again, you lying tree. (laughs) You are all leaf and no fruit. And how many, beloved, how many professing Christians does that apply to? All leaf, beautiful on the outside, religious on the outside. You come to church every week. You drop your money in the plate. You sing the songs with everybody else. And then you leave and you come back the following week. But your heart's not in it. 
You don't love God. You don't love Christ. You don't love his people. You don't hate your sin. You're not moved by the word of God. You don't read the word of God. It, look, the church, coming to church, just like a sidewalk. You're, you're just cutting through, taking a shortcut on the way to wherever you're going. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Jesus hates that. Just like a tree that's all leaf, no fruit. And again and again through the Gospels, we read of Jesus saying, you know what happens to trees that have no fruit? You know what they're good for? They're good for cutting down, throwing into a pile, and being prepared to burn where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that interesting? Combining those metaphors, pretty obvious what he means. All leaf, no fruit. And this is what his estimation of Israel was in his day. Here, all leaf... You're no fruit, and you are cursed of God. And you know what? This was what? 33, 35 AD, 40 years later, the tree would be cut down because the Romans would come and destroy it all. To this day, if you go to Israel, and I haven't been there yet, my son has, though. My daughter hopes to go. But he brought back pictures, and all over the temple, outside the, the old wall, there are these giant stones. They look like they had been part of something, and now they're just laying, and everybody just has to go around them. I mean, they're big. They're as big as this platform. And I asked my son, what in the world is that? It looks like it was chiseled and carved into like a gigantic brick for a giant. And he said, yeah, Dad, that's part of the old temple. Somehow, when the Romans came, they managed to pull down every stone, just as Jesus predicted. And so this prophecy of the tree would come to pass. And the problem was, Israel had rejected God and his Messiah from the heart. It was in this context, with all of this rage against him, and now some Hours, perhaps, after he entered the temple with all that fanfare, Jesus now says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know what that tells me? It tells me Jesus knew. He knew, and this isn't the only... The only place where it's obvious that he knew, but he knew he was going to die. He knew the Jews, with the help of the Romans, they they were going to murder him. In fact, this had been the plan from the very beginning. In fact, look down at verse 27, just a few verses down from there. And we'll get to this in two weeks. But here's, here's what Jesus says. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knew what was about to happen. His glory was not going to be that he would be elevated by the people. His glory would be he would be nailed to a a cross. He would be lifted up. And he said, if I be lifted up, I would draw all men to myself. Jesus knew he was going to be murdered. He knew it. And that's why he had come. 
That's why Jesus was on the earth. He didn't come to be king. He didn't come the first time to be the ruler. Next time, yes. But the first time, no. He came, listen, not to be the king, but to be a grain of wheat that would be drilled into the soil. He's a grain of wheat. And what do you do with a grain of wheat? You don't put it under glass to admire. That'd be weird. (laughs) You don't lift it up on a pedestal and revere it. You don't lock it away and protect it. No, a grain of wheat is to be drilled into the earth where it, metaphorically speaking, dies. Only then can it rise again out of the earth and multiply itself many, many times. And this is how Jesus viewed his life when it came to the final Passover. It wasn't time to be enthroned as king. It wasn't time to be revered as a great prophet. It wasn't time to be protected by an army of his loyal subjects. He made that clear to Pontius Pilate, didn't he? It was time to be a grain of wheat. It was it was time to put, be put into the ground to die in order that eternal life might be given to a host of men and women and children without number to the praise and glory and honor of the Father. This is the purpose for which the Word became flesh. John R. W. Stott brings this into clearer focus when he writes, Although Jesus was brought to his death by human sins, he did not die a martyr. On the contrary, he went to the cross voluntarily, even deliberately. From the beginning of his public ministry, he consecrated himself to this destiny. In his baptism, he identified himself with sinners, as he would do fully on the cross. And in his temptation, he refused to be deflected away from the cross. He repeatedly predicted his sufferings and death and steadfastly set himself to go to Jerusalem to die there. His constant use of the word must in relation to his death expressed not some external compulsion but his own internal resolve to fulfill what had been written of him. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. And then, dropping the metaphor, he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And this is exactly what's happening in this text. Jesus is preparing to lay it down. How do you say, I am going to lay down my life for God's people? You say it like this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, beloved, Jesus didn't come simply to be an example of how to live. Just leave that to the liberal theologues. He came into the world in order to die. He came as a grain of wheat. He came to be the suffering Savior, just as Isaiah predicted, who would bear our sins in his body on the cross. He came to die once so that we might live forever. 
It's amazing. In the Gospels, there's a technical term for how to speak of Jesus going to the cross. How did, how did he get to the cross? Who put him on the cross? And the Greek word is paradidomi, and it, it, it's important because repeatedly we see its use. We see it when Jesus handed Jesus Judas, I said Judas, right? When Judas handed Jesus over to the Jews. And then the same, later on, the text says, the Jews handed him over, it's paradidomi, handed him over to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate. And, and then it says, Pontius Pilate handed him over, a form of paradidomi, handed him over to the executioners. And in every case, it was handing him over, and it's used in other places, uh, captured and handed over to the, to the prison guards, captured in you know, for different places in different contexts, but you, you kind of get the point. He is being handed over. But ultimately, the amazing thing is that the reality was, in Jesus' mind, no one was taking his life from him. He handed himself over to the Jews. He handed himself over to Pontius Pilate. He handed himself over to the executioners. Hence, Paul writes that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. No one takes my life from me. Mark 10.45, Jesus says, for not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve. Stop there. Every time I come here, I remind you, and maybe ad nauseum, maybe you've heard this too much, but anytime you see Son of Man, think Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is being presented to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is giving him what? All of the nations that they might come and serve him. And here Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, not this time, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. It wasn't Judas who was turning him over. It wasn't Pilate who was handing him over. It wasn't the, the, um, it wasn't the executioners who were handing him over. Jesus handed over himself. Why? because he didn't come as king. He came like a grain of wheat so that many would have life. And it would be because of Jesus' death that his very words were fulfilled that many, many, there would be an, an amazing multiplication factor that would sweep the world in fulfillment of passages like Genesis 22:16, Jesus fulfilling here the promise that God made to Abraham. Son, not all sons of Abraham's are sons of Abraham, right? Uh, Paul made that clear in Romans, what, chapter 2? The true sons of Abraham are sons of God by faith. And here's what God said to Abraham. 
because you have not withheld your son. Isn't that interesting? Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now that's multiplication. Exponential multiplication. Multiplication. Or whatever that word is. <laughs> Hosea 1.10, the prophet said, or God said through the prophet, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are the sons of the living God. How many? Multiples of multiples. of It just multiplies out exponentially. I mean, how many grains of sand are there? How many stars in the sky are there? We, we don't know. And, and then you look all the way in the, in the back of the Bible, you know, Revelation chapter 7, John writes, after all these things, I looked up and behold, a great multitude which no man could count from every nation, those are Gentiles, and every tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears what? Much fruit. Jesus knew the Father's plan. He was in on the plan. It was part of the eternal covenant. In his blood. Do you see it, beloved? This is why Jesus came. He came as a sacrifice. And he would reap a harvest, a great harvest of salvation. And so we've seen the, harvest, the, the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of glory, the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of salvation, and now finally the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of reward. Watch this, verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his own life in this world will keep it. To eternal life. If anyone serves me, he will follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. Just an interesting note here, the word serves, he repeats it several times. The word comes from diakonos, where we get our word deacon. Servants of the church, Jesus was the example of that, the ultimate servant. This is the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of great reward. And this, this is important for us because Jesus now turns his attention away from himself and now he's speaking to who? Us. His disciples and us. Jews and Gentiles, all of his professing followers. Jesus' words here are presented in the idiom of a typical Hebrew proverb with two antithetical lines which present a paradox. And here's the paradox. Losing one's life is the condition for gaining new life. Losing one's life is the condition for gaining new life. Now, this was not a new teaching for Jesus. There are several places where we find it, but Luke records a similar statement where Jesus says this. If anyone comes after me, 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Not, not should not. Cannot. It's the same terminology when he says, no one can serve God and money, mammon. Not should not, but cannot. It is not possible. You can't serve God and money, and you can't be my follower. Whoever does not carry his own cross, he continues, and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know what this is? Death to self. Death to self. You know what that means? Here's, here's part of the gospel explanation. Coming to Christ means you surrender. Coming to Christ says, you say from the heart, I am no longer my own. All I know how to do is mess up. All I know how to do is ruin myself and the people around me. All I know how to do is sin against you, and I'm really, really good at it. I'll never be your child unless you do something in my heart to change me and do whatever you want, because from this moment on, I am not my own. I'm yours. Do with me as you will. That's the heart of a true disciple. Remember the story of young David Brainerd in the 1700s, just before the Revolutionary War, and God used him to bring about the great awakening among the Indians in New Jersey, of all places. Literally, in my back door, I could walk to the place where this happened. I didn't know it until I was a pastor of this church. But um, it occurs to me, while I'm standing here, that one of the things, one of the events that happened, or one of the peculiarities of, of what happened there when David Brainerd was sharing the gospel with these Indians, these, these Delaware Indians, and, um, and they would come to him, and they would, weeping, and they would say, I'm not my own anymore. God, do with me what you will. If he would be most glorified in sending me to hell, then send me to hell. I am yours. And Brainerd said, I had to correct their theology because God would never send one of his own to hell. But I loved their deep relinquishing, dying to self. That was so evident. And this is one of the marks of a true child of God. And I realize our time is just about gone. For those of you who are visiting, we don't end at noon. We end at <laughs> noon 15. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> or later. That's great. But I do want to be sensitive to that. And I want to note here that Jesus is calling us to view not only his life as a grain of wheat, but our own lives as a grain of wheat. We think too much of ourselves. If we were Jesus, we would, we would have set up that throne. He knows that many of his followers, followers will be given very grave choices, like 
renounce Jesus or die. And you know what? That's happening today. Today, what is this? March 22nd, 2015. People are dying today facing that choice. I told you just a few weeks ago about the email I got about our brothers over in, and I shouldn't mention the country, I suppose, but over in Central Asia, where they were arrested for, they were celebrating a birthday, but they were accused of having an unlawful worship service in their home, and they were called upon to recant. And they weren't threatened with death, but they were threatened with going to jail, paying heavy fines, in the process of dealing that with that, probably losing their jobs. Jesus understands that this is what's going to face some. I remember when I was a kid reading through Revelation, and you get to that part where he says the souls of those who had been beheaded were under the altar and crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? You remember that? And I used to think, beheaded? That's got to be metaphorical for something. You know, being shot with a cannon or, you know, a... a you know, blown up by an IED or, or something. Who would have ever thought in our lifetime we would, we would see the return of massive beheadings? And it just makes me wonder at the word of God. Just when you think, this doesn't make sense, this is antiquated, this doesn't relate to our time, and then God says, oh yeah? <laughs> he knew what was going to happen. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning. Being Jesus' disciples means you follow him wherever he is, wherever he goes. In fact, he says as much in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be. Jesus, every time he turns around, are you still there? I'm still here. Are you still there? I'm still here. Unfortunately, Jesus turns around and where are you? You say that you are my disciple. Where are you? If you are my disciple, you follow me wherever, I'm, wherever I go. And guess where I am going? Not to Disneyland. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I am not attempting to save my life and pad it with all the comforts that I can I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. You following me? You who claim to be my disciples. You see, followers of Christ no longer live for themselves. They're like sheep. They follow the shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have no reason to fear. You are with me. Your rod and your staff give me great comfort. I trust you. This is the paths of righteousness, the right path. Wherever you lead, it's the right path, even if it scares the fire out of me. It's the right path. That's my hope. That's the language of true disciples. We live to serve Christ and others, not ourselves. But the irony here is that sacrificing our own desires, our own impulses, our own felt needs, so to speak, for the sake of Christ and others is actually the path to real life and evidence of true eternal life. I mean, we would have expected Jesus to say something like, whoever loves his life will keep it. 
But no, whoever loves his life will lose it. Literally, it says, anyone who loves his life is destroying it right now. If you live for yourself, you lose everything. But if you lose yourself for the glory of Christ and for other people, you gain everything that God has promised to be for you in Jesus Christ. And that's everything. You say, well, what does that mean? I mean, what, what, is, what is Jesus, what does God the Father offer? Well, he says things like this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You say, what's all things? What do you need? What do you need right now to be faithful to him? Anything that falls into that category, he supplies by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's always by his Spirit. It's the Spirit in the Word, right? The Spirit in the Word. And this is an amazing thing. Finding life by losing it. And you know what? We have this in the New Testament by example, extreme example, not so extreme example, and a command. Now let me show that to you. I'm away from my notes, so we'll see how this goes. In the book of Acts, we get to Acts 7, 7, heaven. It's where Stephen makes his last stand and is killed. And um, my point is, there is an example of extreme discipleship. The Lord is saying, I'm going to the cross and I am going to be killed. Are you following me? And Stephen says, right behind you, Lord. Seven chapters later, guess who's being stoned? Stephen, and he looks up into heaven and sees Jesus getting ready to welcome him. And he says the exact same words that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's Stephen. That's Stephen allowing his little wheat of a life to be drilled into the ground so it will multiply. And then we have a, not an extreme, but a normal example of this truth in the church. Because what do we find in the church? Those who are not being martyred, what are they doing? They are discerning what everybody else needs, and they're giving what they have to meet their need. And everybody had all things in common, right? That's not communism. Communism is when the government takes what you have and gives it to other people. That's not this. This is spirit-wrought generosity, self-abasement, others' exaltation. I must decrease. You must increase. You have need. Take my supply. It's yours. It never was mine. That's what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. What am I? Am I a king so that everybody bows down to me and does what I want? No, I am a grain of wheat as my Savior was. Extreme example, normal example, example, and now a command. Because this principle applies not only to the, the, the scary area of possible martyrdom, which most of us will 
maybe never experienced in this life. Most of us, not our brothers, a lot of them are experiencing it every day. It's like uh, Romans 8, when Paul said, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. You know what he was talking about? He's talking about the martyrdom of the saints in his time. God's people. But this whole principle applies to you and me, and especially to you married people, specifically, and certainly in all of our relationships, even as single people, this applies, this ranking yourself under others. It's Ephesians 5.21 that tells us to, uh, to rank ourselves under, to submit to one another, to put ourselves under each other rather than over. But then uh, the, the, the command is this, Ephesians 5.21. Five, speaking specifically to husbands, and he says what? Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church, and what? Para did o me, gave himself over, gave himself up. It's that same word that speaks to him giving himself up to death, to the cross. All I have is yours, That's how we're to love each other. This gets very practical, doesn't it? Most of us will never face the prospect of martyrdom, but every day we must decide whether to live for self or live for Christ and our neighbors. The whole of Scripture teaches that real joy and blessing is found not in attempting to save our lives and preserving our comforts, but giving our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. This is the sacrifice that reaps a harvest of reward. And beloved, this is very practical for us right now because we're getting ready to plant this church. And those of you who are in the church plant, you're going to experience this in a mighty way. Because every day is going to be paradiddle me, right? Every day you're going to have to be turning yourself over, your own desires, dying to what you want. And I know for a fact that some of you who are going on this, you're going to be part of this church. It's not because you had an impulse and a great uh, magnetic pull in that direction, but because you're dying to self. And we praise God for you. You'd rather stay here, but you're going there. God bless you. And you know what? Here in this church... There are going to be positions that are going to be vacated. There's going to be much need. And all of us, all of us are going to be have, to, have to, to crank up what it means to be disciples. And serving God, laying down our lives, laying down our homes, laying down our money, laying down our, our time for the glory of God in Christ and for one another what it means to be the church. The church follows Christ wherever he leads, and he leads to sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice to sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to reward. It's a sacrifice that leads to blessing. This is the life that we are called to live and a life that we love to live. We sang this song. You know, I get the privilege of being in the worship service twice on Sunday morning, and some of you do too, but first time we sang this song, it didn't, you know, I was maybe thinking about other things, I don't know, but that's why I, I come the second time, so I get it. Um, Jesus, I my cross have taken, and I, I almost couldn't finish this first verse, listen to this. Jesus, I my cross have taken, <clears throat> all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou hast hence Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. 
all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Whoever wrote this song knew this passage. I'm convinced of it. And by the way, Jesus underscores this, this blessed life and the prospects of future blessing in verse 26, at the end of verse 26. And with this we close. Watch this. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, my Father will what? Honor him. You follow Jesus to the cross, you get the same sacrifice and the same glory. Not that you are You become God, you don't. But you are in Christ, and all that he has is yours. So two things we learn from this text. First, Jesus did not come to serve himself, but to sacrifice himself for others. Secondly, we are called to follow in his steps by not living to pad or protect our lives, but to give them away for the good of others and the glory of our King. This is is life indeed. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Father, we praise you for this, not only the glory of what Jesus did, and that's enough, and that's enough, It's glory in itself, but the fact that you call us and invite us to participate in that glory and the joy, oh, Father, we know it was for the joy set before him that he despised the cross and ended up sitting at the right hand of the Father. And for you to promise us that we who follow him will go where he goes, Lord, Why would I hold back anything from you? Thank you, Father, for encouraging us. Thank you for reminding us that our labors are not in vain in the Lord. And even when we're exhausted from the labor, it is not in vain in the Lord. Use us, Father. Empower us. Energize us. Forgive us for the excuses that we make for not working hard for your kingdom and your glory and transform us into followers of Jesus indeed. Lead us, Father. Grant us grace to follow wherever you lead, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.